HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. World Central Kitchen is serving thousands of fresh meals to Ukrainian families fleeing home, as well as people remaining in the country. This week on Let's Talk About Food, host Louisa Kasdan spoke with Henry Patterson about his upcoming relief trip. So you're going to Poland, and I think you told me you're going to be there for at least two weeks. I'm going to Poland to help feed Ukrainian refugees. With Jose Andreas's World Central Kitchen, I decided that's what I wanted to do for my 70th birthday. I leave in just a few days. We all see that what the Russians are doing is contemptible. As a food person, we all love to help. It's in our DNA. And here are people who really need our help. So if you want to help the Ukrainian refugees, either with money or even your hands and heart, find hashtag Chefs for Ukraine and World Central Kitchen. We have to do something. We can help. Remember, hashtag Chefs for Ukraine. Support for this episode comes from Team Pennsylvania, hosting the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit. Two events in 2022 offering a place for farmers, professionals, investors, and policymakers to learn and connect. Details at pahempsummit.com. You're listening to Season 2 of Fields, the podcast, with Melissa Metric, Wythe Marshall, and Allie Whist. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice, to feed the hungry, to green the city, or to uncover its history. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow food, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming and urban environments. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements, examining each in turn. Thank you so much for listening. Hi, everyone. Um, Welcome to Fields. Uh, We're really excited to be back. Um, Today, it's just going to be Uh, the host kind of talking about greenhouses. Um, And the main reason why is because as we record in these colder months in New York and the winter doldrums set in, many of us dream of being surrounded by green. Um, I think, so this is Melissa speaking. um, I think that's the, the main reason why I got grow, I got into growing in urban areas Um, And for growers in general, we start planting in our greenhouses if we're lucky enough to have one. Um, And so in this show, we will discuss the multiple uses of greenhouses, discussing everything from off-the-grid eco-friendly design use of them to residential community urban growing. Um, So how these semi-permanent structures are starting to be used more in adapting to climate change as well as the challenges of building greenhouses in dense populated areas with zoning laws in the city. Um, so that's kind of just our our quick kind of layout intro that um, we're going to start out with. So, um, Wythe, would you want to just do a quick kind of history of greenhouses? I know we're going to kind of focus more on residential greenhouses, but would you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, People have used all kinds of of structures to protect crops while they're growing uh, in different cultures uh, throughout human history. So this could be viewed uh, as 
in modern like industry jargon, controlled environment agriculture, meaning a completely enclosed space, uh, which back in the day, if you wanted sunlight to be coming in, you had to use something transparent. So basically glass uh, or um, modified environment agriculture. So you might just um, use like a wall so that you are capturing some of the sun's heat or protecting plants in some way. Uh, and, you know, that that's uh, there's sort of a spectrum from like a cloche, like basically a glass uh uh, nice glass jar you put over plants to extend the season for each individual little plant to a fruit wall where you're growing fruit trees and you have a wall that's helping manage um, basically regulate the, the temperature throughout the season um, all the way to a glass house. So a greenhouse, um, often you might think of a glass house. Modern greenhouses around the world today are mostly plastic, actually. They're like heavy duty plastic, um, except in certain areas like the Netherlands is really famous for having um, this area that's like a you know huge amount of acreage that's glassed in and so there's just you can drive through like glass house after glass house and they're growing tons and tons of food that goes all throughout Europe. Spain has kind of an equivalent area that's mostly plastic um and those two regions are really large and concentrated. Um and yeah, what we're talking about today is I think more individuals kind of using um greenhouses to grow their own food, which is is cool and I think becoming more popular especially with COVID. I know somebody who works in the industry does supplies uh for greenhouses and growing um so free, but also, yeah, just kind of people going sort of pro amateur in terms of, of horticulture. And uh, they, they like can't keep things on the shelves. Like everything is flying out of the warehouses because uh, more people are realizing like, oh, my God, there may not be the food I want exactly when I want it at the local supermarket. And maybe I should learn more about like where does food come from? Uh, but, yeah, in terms of history, um, it would be. You know, interesting to, uh, you know, we could talk for, for hours about different aspects of growing indoors. Um, I researched a lot like soil free growing, which is not um, the only kind of growing. You can also grow with soil that you've put over glass. And again, I've been to both kinds of greenhouses. Um, but yeah, soil free growing really dates to the 20th century, the early 20th century, like the 1920s and 30s um, really takes off after World War Two and um, is a big part of greenhouses today. So a lot of greenhouse growing crops, uh, you might think of tomatoes. Uh, peppers, those are those are crops commonly grown, uh, leafy greens, and they might be soil free. Um, and you still might also have areas where you're growing all those kinds of crops, but in in the ground and just using the glass. Essentially, this is about regulating temperature. So you're you're keeping warm air in uh, and uh, the cool air out when the winter. So you can extend the growing season. Um, you can't necessarily grow year round, uh, although many places you you can. So it sort of depends on latitude. Um, and greenhouses have gotten a lot better and there's all kinds of things now. So, you know, it used to be just, okay, you glass it in. Um, maybe you had some form of heating, but now there's a lot more sophisticated ways to do HVAC. So sort of control heating, but also, um, humidity throughout the year. And a lot of that's done with the aid of, of really cheap sensors, uh, and that revolution. So using like sophisticated lighting, all kinds of new, um, computer software that, that stuff takes off. Um, yeah, through, I mean, after World War II, but really picks up uh, in the 80s, 90s today with, uh, you know, LEDs now for lighting. So that's, that's you know, the last uh, 10, 20 years. Um, and with uh, computers, uh, back to the home grower idea, like, like these used to be really bulky computer systems that just did one thing. You know, they checked temperatures in big greenhouses and sort of regulated them. They check nutrients for the, the, uh, the nutrient solution if it's growing hydroponically. Now you have like little sensors, air sensors that you can get um, at home very cheaply. And so you could um, attach those to some cheap like pumps. You could attach them to, you know, again, like a heating or cooling element. And you could set up your own little system, kind of like the pros, uh, and have computers telling you, um, hey, you need to, you know, you need to do this, you need that, or just tell them to, you know, to set it on a timer, essentially. Um, so I think that, sorry, that's like a lot of stuff, but, but I mean, there's been a lot of developments, but this is not like a new idea at all, really. Uh, we're talking about something that people have all over the world been practicing. And nowadays, there's just a lot more availability for anyone to kind of, um, you know, spend a few hundred, a few thousand bucks and grow at some scale, you know, kind of professionally, um, more or less year round. Yeah, I really think of the history of greenhouses, at least to me, really typifies the kind of romanticism or, you know, romantic era notion that 
the natural world can be constructed and contained for our gaze. Um, of course, ironically done through artificiality. But now we have, you know, it's not really just gardens or landscape architecture um, that greenhouses are associated with. It's really more about um, growing food in cities and growing food sustainably. And it's kind of a completely different reason that we're looking at and that I think, um, you know, the individual domestic house is no longer – a, a site just for landscaping and ornamental decoration. And I know, Melissa, you ha really have an interest in this kind of greenhouse or sustainable house design. Um, and I'm kind of curious, you know, from your experience or perspective, like, is this just a trend or an aesthetic interest? You know, someone wants to put up a green wall and kind of um, feel a little closer to nature. But how could you actually embed a growing and a greenhouse in a domestic setting? Yeah, um, that's that's a great question, Ellie. And I love how you kind of talk about like romanticizing like nature within your house as like there's a trumpet playing in the background. <laughs> like it's a really nice melody. But um, but yeah, I think I think what kind of um, really got the wheels kind of turning is a couple different things, kind of like what wife mentioned um, with COVID, a lot of people kind of got more into this like prepper mode of how to be really sustainable and being in regions where there's a winter, we cannot grow all year long outside. And especially thinking about climate change, like, yes, maybe our, our winters will be warmer, but sometimes they could be more extreme. And depending on currents and things like that, we could actually get colder conditions or, or things like that. So, um, so I think just looking into this idea and as well as the Satopia episodes that um, that you all kind of recorded also really inspired me to think about how can we a in a in a rural or suburban area, if you're building a house, uh, where would it make sense to kind of add on a greenhouse um, and can that help heat your home? How would you cool your home as well? Because, you know, greenhouses could get really hot if they're in the sun, especially in the summer. Um, but that kind of inspired me. So, um, you know, how could you grow all year round with a green greenhouse attached to your home and also help heat your home and kind of make more of a passive house? Um, and then also it kind of made me look at the history of um, folks in New York City and residential homes having greenhouses attached. So um, I used to work for um, a company where I would work on people's residential gardens. And so many of them, especially from the 60s and 70s, had these attached greenhouses. Um, but there was a law that recently, or I think it was in 2015, that um, a lot of folks, instead of actually growing plants um, in these greenhouses that were attached to their, you know, like penthouse apartments or whatever, they just use it as like extra room in their homes. Um, and so they weren't considered any more temporary structures. Um, and, and so from that, you know, that started becoming illegal and all these other things. So also just focusing on um, having a greenhouse in an urban area um, and what are the rules and regulations um, for that? Because I've come across a lot of issues with that in general, especially in the places that I've grown and having a greenhouse. Is it a temporary structure? Is it a permanent structure? Is it illegal? Is it legal? Uh, how much do we have to hide it? That type of thing. Um, and so, and, and that really affects my growing. If I want to grow from seed, if I want to grow many, many different varieties, then I need a greenhouse or an indoor kind of place to grow that in, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm kind of curious if you can tell us a little more about why a greenhouse is so important. I mean, those of us, those of our listeners who are growers will have a familiarity with that. Um, but like you started to get into, if you want to grow something from seed, you have to have a greenhouse. Like the individual domestic grower, like what is the advantage to them to having a greenhouse? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So you don't have to have a greenhouse to grow from seed. Like so many, you know, home growers will just 
you know, start the seeds on top of their refrigerator or their stove, and then they'll put them by the window or put grow lights on it. So there's ways that you could do it in your apartment or in your home. You don't necessarily need a greenhouse, but if you are doing like a a larger operation or let's say, you know, for example, at the NYU Urban Farm Lab, um, we have to grow a lot of crops, right? And, And a lot of those crops we would want to start from seed. And so it kind of, you know, like I can't just do that in my apartment or even it's kind of interesting. Like, um, sometimes we try to grow it in the nutrition and food studies department. Like we have a Metro shelf rack and we have grow lights and all these other things. But then when we put it outside in these really extreme conditions, um, our plants don't necessarily do so well. Um, and of course I could, what they call like harden and off and do all these other things, But what I've noticed, like when I used to work at Roberta's and we actually had a greenhouse um, and it was a passive greenhouse, meaning that we didn't heat it, we didn't cool it. um, I felt like the crops did a lot better when we transitioned them to to outside, Um, even though that's not ideal, honestly, like you really want it to be controlled and all this other stuff. But anyways, long story short, um, It's just important, A, if you're doing education, so how to show your students or whoever you're teaching um, how to grow from seed. B, you're going to be able to um, grow way more crops than, let's say, you know, your um, garden store or hardware store or farmer's market has. Um, And also, I I guess this goes back to like education in in teaching most of our school year is in the winter. So it could definitely help out with teaching students, you know, how to grow these crops. Granted, a lot of folks just grow indoors now, have a room that they grow indoors and that's lit with LED lights and all these and it's soilless growing. Um, But but it's but it's just interesting that transition to if you do want to grow in soil, how to start those crops. Um, and sometimes having a greenhouse really kind of helps. And also it's just really awesome to be in a greenhouse in, in the winter. I mean, that's how I, you know, sometimes am not depressed. I'll go to like the Brooklyn Botanic Gardens and go in the greenhouses and just be like surrounded by green. And that actually really helps sometimes, you know? Yeah, I think we kind of undervalue the sensory experience of being in a greenhouse and around plants during the winter. And I mean, for all the reasons you mentioned, as well as an increasingly volatile climate, they're also incredibly practical. And I think we should consider both the practicality and maybe the embodied benefits of having it in cities. And as cities are growing, having that exposure to the to plants and the warmth of the sun coming in through the it is it's a magical thing to be able to do in the middle of January. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um yeah, it's it, it is kind of interesting. So, um so in in doing a little bit of of research um especially with this idea of in rural or suburban areas, I was really looking at people either attaching greenhouses to their homes or I even I even found in Sweden There is this design called Nature House where they actually surround their house in a greenhouse. (laughs) Like in glass? Like the house is covered in a glass shell. Yeah. And granted, this is Sweden, right? And and the first thing, if you've ever been in a greenhouse in the summer, you're like, whoa, that's going to get way too hot. Um, But there's ways that you could vent, you know, vent that out and all that other stuff and, and kind of regulate it. Um, but yeah, it was, I think the architect bank, I'm going to say his name wrong, but banked Warren, um, in 1974 designed a prototype for what they call a nature house in Sweden, which, um, is a way to deal with cold winters. And it's, um, it's so that you could grow all year long. And also it's kind of interesting. Like I was watching this video of, this um, family that had a nature house in Sweden and um, how since the house is covered in glass, um, their house lasts way longer because it's never exposed to rain. It's never exposed to wind and all this other stuff. Um, So it has a sustainable materials kind of component too. (laughs) Yeah. and, And it warms it, but of course you need so many ways to like vent it out, especially in, in the summer. And, and sometimes I could, be regulated and you could do shade cloth and all this other stuff. But I thought that was kind of a really interesting, um, kind of concept. 
Um, yeah, just picturing like covering entire houses with yards and gardens in glass. Like how how far does that glass shell extend out? And what if you have a whole garden plot and you just encase the whole thing? Like it kind of gets a little sci-fi pretty fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, like I, I remember in, um, in, uh, Thomas Pigeon's Gravity's Rainbow, like one of the first scenes is this war scene and this guy who's in the army, he goes upstairs into a greenhouse and he harvests all these bananas and makes this like big banana breakfast for all the troops that are like, you know, hungover and all this other stuff. But it was just kind of interesting. This, this idea of, you know, like, home growing in the time of crisis or like having these things, but, but also, um, you know, looking at the future and in this, in this time with climate change of how, you know, storms are going to get worse and all these other things of like, how much are we going to have to protect our, our crops? You know, wife, do you want to jump in? <laughs> sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's so much to say. I mean, I think the pension one also rereading that you, you, you sent a link, um, and it's interesting to see, like, the like he's growing in part on waste. And so this is uh, definitely not the point of Gravity's Rainbow. But uh, it's interesting that, yeah, it does open in a way with, like, there's waste that's accumulated weirdly on top of a building. And this one guy grows bananas. And then, like, that's all he eats is bananas. And then the, the book moves on. Um, but it, but as a kind of symbol, because it's amidst, you know, wartime London and, and World War II, it's, it's kind of, it, it does call to mind, um, as you say, like, crisis. Uh, and rethinking kind of urban environments and, and, you know, it's, it's one of the many pension-esque moments that's just meant to be kind of weird and memorable. But I think that weirdness is exactly the point, kind of something that comes up in the conversation on Setopia is around, um, maybe that's, that should be sort of normal going forward, like growing your own food and the fact that you could grow, uh, you know, tropical crops in a, in a, you know, colder environment, um, might happen due to climate disruption as you say but also because you know if you're, if you're working with controlled or modified environment agriculture um and the changing environment you know new york city will be subtropical pretty soon and so you could easily you know grow these these tropical crops indoors um if managed correctly so i i think that's like that's kind of an interesting symbol i think like on the ground i, I think nature house to me is very similar it's it's like more of a symbol um because you don't see a lot of these being built for whatever reason, probably just like expense and the utility is is pretty low. But you do see something else, which I, I've studied a little, which is residential agriculture, the idea of using indoor agriculture as a sort of way of upselling homes. Um, and, and that's how, you know, you shared sort of the brief histories from the New York Times of like greenhouses in the city. And in those cases, um, you know, before using this term, those are all residential agriculture. They're not really about food production. They're about amenity space. Um, so it's interesting that now there are some places like region eco villages in um, the EU uh, and like here in New York and New Jersey, um, green food solutions. You know, my, my friend's company works to install farms in apartment buildings. Um, so in, in green food solutions case, they like have lots of little tower farms, these little hydroponic units on the roof or in, in a basement inside a building as an amenity. So it's like built in. Um, and then in regions case, they do like a wall of a new home. So they'll do a subdivision where every home has like a big salad wall, like really large scale. And the idea is you as a community could grow a lot of food and maybe not everyone participates equally because you're not all as interested in it or have the time. So maybe someone like grows for like four of the homes on the block. Um, and I, I don't know how that's going in terms of like trying to do the social engineering alongside like just making this a reasonable um, amenity to include in a home like a pool or anything else, because, you know, it requires some knowledge. It requires a, a lot of work, a lot of like upkeep. But I think it's an interesting sort of proposal that like uh, maybe this is where it's headed and maybe um, in the same way that like nature house and sort of speculative architecture, like I also think of like Vincent Caillabeau's, um like giant speculative uh designs for, you know, buildings covered in trees. Um, that's kind of the, the leading edge, you know, science fiction in a way and speculative architecture. And then you have this kind of like high end amenities, which also I don't think on their own are going to change the world. Um, they're just kind of in a way capitalism doing capitalism, you know, they're, ma they're finding a, a good or service to make some money on. But I think those are signs of uh, of more and more people being more and more invested sort of across class, ac across a lot of region. Um, in growing food indoors in cities. 
Uh, and, and, you know, as you say, I mean, the, the best, one of the easy ways to do that is like get a little LED and grow a little plant. But if you want to do it at a larger scale, you're probably not going to grow in a New York City apartment, at least, you know, in a vertical farm setting. <laughs> like you're not going to devote your limited space to like this horrible pink purple, just completely filled with shelves. Um, you know, a greenhouse is a little nicer. It's, it's more that, that experience you guys are talking about. It's more about the sensory and um, I, I don't know, it's a lot cheaper. So it, it, it sort of depends on what we're talking about. But I, I could really see small scale greenhouses taking off um, for that scale, for the residential scale, faster than like really sophisticated high tech stuff, just because it, it doesn't it feels like that's not exactly what people want yet. I mean, maybe eventually we'll get there and everyone will be growing in your own little vertical farm. But I, I think we're we'll probably see more and more kind of collaborations on greenhouses before that. Um yeah, and and also just the idea. So, um, like I was, I was sometimes I get emails from Farm School NYC, um, which is um, kind of this this school that uh, teaches folks about agriculture and urban urban areas that focuses um, on or a lot of folks are in community gardens. And, um, you, you know, they have a, a lot of different kind of things going on. I'm sorry, I'm not explaining it too well. But anyways, I got their email and they are kind of, they put out this newsletter saying that they could install free high tunnels for community gardens and things like that. So also the idea of a high tunnel, like that's what I had at Roberta's, which is pretty much, um, it's not glass, it's plastic. You could use PVC pipe. You kind of just build this tunnel. That's what like a lot of farmers do um, in rural areas and also in urban areas. So also this sense of doing it really on the cheap. And that is a temporary structure. Like you could take it down really easily. Um, but, but just a way as like a season extension technique, right? So, so that's another kind of idea. So if you're an outdoor grower and you're growing in soil, or even if you're growing in aquaponics, hydroponics, whatever, um, you could, you know, have this tunnel that is going to, it could be heated, it could be not heated, but could add that extra kind of temperature. So you could keep growing, um, all year round. So I think that's also kind of um, like I know if if I did something, that's probably what I would do is is kind of like a high tunnel because um, it worked out so well when I was at Roberta's. We just kind of rolled up the sides when it got hot. Um, we also rolled up the sides when there was big storms so the plastic wouldn't fly off. Um, but also just these other ways to kind of keep growing and, and how a lot of folks in urban areas use these kind of techniques and things like that. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I thought I would just kind of bring that up as well. Support for this episode comes from Team Pennsylvania, hosting the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit with two events in 2022 that offer a place for farmers, professionals, investors, and policymakers to learn and connect while providing an occasion to network and grow the businesses that comprise the region's hemp industry. The Pennsylvania Hemp Summit aims to increase the Commonwealth's shared knowledge and resources in order to inspire innovative investments and to form transformative partnerships in the hemp industry. Join us for our upcoming trade show, reception, and investor pitch competition in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on April 26th to 27th, and again on November 8th and 9th for educational sessions, a trade show, and reception. Register to attend or get involved by exhibiting or sponsoring. Details at pahempsummit.com. Are you a business owner? This spring, amplify your business and support HRN's mission by becoming a business member. HRN is dedicated to spotlighting small businesses that keep our communities vibrant. With a $500 business membership, HRN can shine a light on your work, and you can help sustain our mission to transform the way people think about food. As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, your business will receive on-air mentions, social media posts, listings on our website, and more. You will also play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash biz to become a business member today. That's heritageradionetwork.org slash B-I-Z. I think that accessibility of materials is really important from a practical standpoint. But if you're looking at it from a cultural standpoint, I kind of think that the extension of greenhouses into suburban or urban communities, like thinking of the housing complex with some sort of collaborative component of a greenhouse, um, 
will require an aesthetic consideration. Like that's just sort of how we are and how Americans are. And even if you look at the regulations around building greenhouses um, and like you were going to get a little more into some of the restrictions on how, you know, how tall it can be, what it can look like. Like a lot of the considerations, especially in suburban areas, are aesthetic. You can't build X out of uh, this high or out of these materials because it won't look nice enough. And then our housing value goes down if there's a bunch of PVC piping and plastic everywhere. Um, and I just think it's interesting the kind of luxury component of reintroducing agriculture into domestic spaces as an upsell for a house or like as a sort of wealthier indulgence of like a greenhouse, but one that's sleek. And in that regard, I do think there will be some of that high technology that that makes it into a sleek cultural product and makes it luxuryified, if you will. Um, there's a Dutch artist and designer, Marjan van Abel, who uh, designed this self-powered hydroponic rooftop greenhouse. It's like a basically a self-sustaining AI greenhouse, and it just runs on its own, and it regulates itself, and it runs its own power. Um, and in some ways, I feel like that's kind of a um, really modern product that people would buy to put on their roof and kind of not have to deal with any of the aesthetic ramifications of soil or um, sort of some of those other materials we associate with farming that um, kind of clash with certain standards in terms of, you know, domestic design, interior design. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. So so this isn't I, I get what you're saying, Ellie, with with that, that idea of like that eyesore, right? And um, but also the kind of interesting aspect of design with greenhouses, especially when it comes to urban areas and when you're growing indoors in, in general, a lot of times you're going to use a lot of electricity, right? So um, in, in researching for this episode, I also came across what they're calling a smart greenhouse, um, which um, it's um, so it's a new solar greenhouse um, technology that can reduce the dependence on electricity. So pretty much what it is, it, it uses wavelength selective photovoltaic systems, um, which means that um, it, it kind of creates uh, self-sustaining electricity for the greenhouse. So there's these like strips and it's also magenta. So I don't know how aesthetically pleasing that is. Um, but there's these pink roof panels that um, are stained. Sorry, I'm, I'm reading this from a um, from a article that was in Futurism by Dom Gallian. Um, but um, yeah, so they're they're using these um, a pink roof panels that are stained with a luminescent dye, which absorbs light and captures energy um, in narrow photovoltaic strips. So um, what these strips do is, so it's like you're not only growing in a greenhouse where the plants are growing and the plants are using the sun, but as the, the top of the greenhouse is getting that sun, it is able to convert it into electricity, which is really interesting because a lot of issues with greenhouses and indoor growing systems is like how much electricity it uses. So um, that there's you know, these smart greenhouses will actually be able to make their own electricity, which is also a huge problem of emission of greenhouse gases from urban buildings in general, right? Like how, how much do urban buildings, you know, um, kind of emit these gases or the use of electricity or all the other things that, you know, they're, um, they're really insufficient in. Yeah. And this is where, you know, it is, Urban, urbanism is not one smooth phenomenon. Uh, and so it's like interesting to think about the aesthetic considerations of like rooftop greenhouses in New York City or balcony spaces being enclosed, um, which is very different than like in a suburban context. Usually um, a lot of the greenhouses sold in the United States and, and I imagine Canada as well, which has a somewhat similar, you know, urban rural makeup are aimed at like putting in a backyard. So they would be out of sight. So that would have no bearing on like local ordinances. Um, technically there are probably still like zoning laws in a lot of places that would affect what's allowed. But as you saw in that, like we read this New York time article from a few years ago about, um, really visible greenhouses in the city and how they're not super well regulated. Usually it comes down to co-op boards, 
having these sort of aesthetic freakouts, <laughs> um, and 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 frankly, energy freakouts, as Melissa, you were just saying. Um, so it's sort of up to the people in the building and essentially to sort of patrol, like, oh wait, is someone using a lot more energy because they have this huge glass surface that thus is is really inefficient compared to brick. Um, at keeping heat in in the winter. Um, but in a suburban context, it's even less likely, I think, that anyone's going to come by and be like, can I go in your backyard and check if you're growing, you know, whether it's cannabis or tomatoes, who knows? It's it's almost the same as having an outdoor um, grow, you know, a, a few rows of raised beds. But in this case, okay, you've bought like a glass house, right? So I, I think there is that difference. And then in terms of energy, um, it's really interesting. In most cities in the United States, um, cars, you know, transportation is the major source of emissions. But in New York City, it's not. It's buildings. So because of public transit, we don't emit that much per person in terms of um, getting around. But uh, the boilers are really inefficient. Most of the buildings we live in are from like right after World War II. Um, they're not really, you know, efficient when in terms of heating. They don't. They're not double paned, and that's something that the cities tried to address. Um, probably. I think the best legacy of de Blasio will be, you know, these local laws that were passed um, over the last several years. So it's a kit of laws just called the local laws that affect climate um, buildings in terms of emissions uh, with, with an eye to reduce, you know, climate disruption. Like, again, it's, it's kind of too little too late, but it's still really good. And it basically they incentivize uh, developers to retrofit. Um, you know, get rid of really inefficient old boilers, do all these things. And uh, partly, you know, green roofs can play a role. Um, you know, maybe green houses uh, can can play a role. But it's actually something that the city's like collecting information on. And there's all these milestone dates where if you're still emitting a certain amount of carbon from your building by a certain date, like you get fined and the fines go up and up and up. So I think I think that's, you know, these these interesting stories collide about like consumers freaking out because they go to the store, they can't get the food they want, and they think, oh, I should like learn to grow some vegetables. It's not that hard. It's kind of interesting, kind of fun. You get into it. It's a hobby, right? Um, and it's a productive hobby. You feel maybe good about it. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, there's like concerns about like maybe cities should have more green space. Maybe uh, maybe there's other ways that, that like buildings should be built with green stuff in them, including food production. And then you have like laws that, that are trying to change real estate, um, you know, carrots and sticks to sort of like make it somehow better or greener or sustainable. I'm doing quotation mark fingers because those are all like hard to define and people argue. Um, but I think that, yeah, it's like this intersection that seems to like overdetermine a bit that like personal, you know, horticultural products will continue to sell, including like many greenhouses. I mean, they're um, that they make a lot of sense in a lot of areas. Um, and you can imagine more and more people uh, getting into it and high tunnels. Yeah. Isn't the government just giving away high tunnels? I have to look, but is it, doesn't USDA have a high tunnel program where you can just be like, Hey, I need a high tunnel. Um, did I make that up, Melissa? I, I mean, I'm not sure. I, I think it, it, it of course depends on like if, if you are a, what kind of farmer you are, right? So I don't know if they're giving them away for community gardens or for just residential, like that sounds about right for commercial. Um, but yeah, from, and, and I'm sure there's other types of grants that you get for like educational and all this other stuff. But um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure about that. It looks like you have to apply and you can do things like, um, you know, uh, um, yeah, essentially say that you're you're doing conservation practices and they'll give you one. Um, but but that's but in any event, it's like that's that's like a high priority. It's like get more places under high tunnel um, at USCA. So I don't know. I think it's it's interesting to think about. I, you're right. It's probably not aimed at urban, but I wonder about that intersection with urban growers too. Yeah, and I also just think like that idea of the so so here you know in New York City we have winters and things like that. But also just the idea, like I've had um, some students in my class where I have them design gardens and things like that for their final project and their residencies or whatever. And a lot of my students come from like all over the world and certain regions that have monsoons. And I've had some students kind of design greenhouses to protect their crops from monsoons or other things. So it's also just this aspect of like, um, if, if you can build a greenhouse kind of or a hoop house strong enough. Um, so it's not only to kind of extend the season, and I know we already just kind of talked about this, but um, but also this idea of like protecting the crop in general from these larger storms that we're going to get if we could actually do that, right? So I think that's kind of another 
aspect of it as well. Or if a hurricane comes through, do you just have to roll up the sides and like cross your fingers <laughs> and make sure it's bolted in? But you know, if 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 you can do the design where it's like really kind of structurally sound, um, can can farmers actually save their crops that way if if they don't have like acres and acres of land? But also there are greenhouses in certain you know um, regions that are just greenhouses because you can't really grow outside because it's too hot or whatever. So it, that's, that's also already being done. You know? Yeah. I mean, and I think you had, uh, sent us a link to agritecture's, um, work on greenhouses that can actually, you know, be, that are resistant to hurricanes, which, you know, can be installed and built on island nations, which not only helps to protect the crops there, but actually makes them more sufficient and, you know, have a more self-sufficient food system overall, because not only are you introducing, um, you know, that added component to the food system, but it's also be it's able to weather natural disasters in a way that other local crops maybe couldn't, which is kind of an interesting um you know, maybe an unexpected way to deal with the natural disaster intersection with um, agriculture on island nations. But it definitely reminded me of agriculture that I saw in Israel, which it's so hot in parts of Israel, and they basically drape all of the crops with plastic uh, to prevent them from, you know, sun da- the equivalent of sun damage you can enliven uh, or enlighten me, Melissa, on the proper term for that. But it was just really wild to see, like, miles and miles of plastic being used to protect crops. And so um, at that point, like, how far are we from this actually just being indoors? <laughs> yeah, I, I I think that's really interesting because it is true that this idea of of, like, protecting your crops when it gets too hot, right? With shade cloth or whatever. And and that's going to be a lot easier if you already have a structure up or if you have this kind of base up. And and these might be issues that that we will have in the future. But I guess overall, I was just like really interested in, you know, in my dream home, whenever I build that and have tons of money to do that, God, I don't know when that will ever be how to, you know, make it as sustainable as possible and how to connect a greenhouse to that, where I could cut back my energy use, where um, I could grow food, where it could help heat my home, and then hopefully like some basement area could help cool it, you know, so all of these kind of ideas. And, you know, let's say if I never get all of that money to build my home upstate or wherever, um, would I be able to also use these same practices in, in an urban area? Like, will folks be able to kind of do that? And and what are the zoning laws that are going to keep us from doing that? And especially if we're just like either residential growers or community garden growers or school, you know, like school greenhouses, um, you know, how... Like a lot of people already have greenhouses and hoop houses and a lot of people don't actually have issues with that. But I've just found that I've come across issues. I mean, right now at the NYU Urban Farm Lab, it's landmarks. So we can't have any, you know, permanent structures or non-permanent structures, whatever. So like we can't have a greenhouse there, right? When I was at Roberta's, we had the hoop houses and things like that. Um, But it was always like, hmm, (laughs) can we have these? I don't know. But you know, it, and I think they ended up taking them down, um, you know, once, whatever, but. Yeah. Well, you see how, how political economy determines so much because yeah, I mean, it, it comes down to like whose interests are at stake. Like I, like we work with, you know, like, like the passive house people, like, like that's a cool building standard that's getting more popular. But to your point, it's like, I'll do that dot, dot, dot when I have a bunch of money, you know, like who gets to build the bio shelter or the nature house, um, well, you can like go somewhere cheap, which is what, you know, in the case of um, the new alchemists they did in the 70s, building like the original like bio shelter um, in, in that context of basically a suburban environment, you know, like Cape Cod. But like they're going to build a house that, that does these things you want and grow a whole bunch of food in like geodesic domes and have Buckminster Fuller come and hang out. Um, and Nature House, you know, again, it's like, OK, you're a famous architect and you're going to glass in this house and it's really beautiful. Um but that's, you know, the land price is cheaper and also you have these access to resources. Um, and 
if you're if you're not that person or you're not going to leave like an urban context where that's kind of unrealistic like you can't just buy a bunch of land cheaply and do whatever on it um then you kind of have to work together you have to form political units that can meaningfully do things like like right now the simplest things you know these local laws like change the law so that concepts like urban agriculture and climate related emissions are taken into account at all. You know what I mean? They're just visible to policymakers. The next step would be like enforcing something more like passive house. And I think what you'd eventually see, and I am a little bit hopeful just because I've talked with some relatively young, like construction engineering people and architects is that the next generation, like they have the kinds of things you're talking about in mind and they want to make it cooler, cheaper, less of just kind of speculative and more of an amenity, which of which unfortunately this is this trickle down capitalist thing. It'll start with people who have a lot of money. And then hopefully over time, by the time we're old, it'll be much more normal to live in a house where, yeah, like food production is part of the house and it was just designed that way. So I think like we can see it either. It's kind of sci-fi from 2022's perspective, although in other ways, it's just like that's a lot of that's most cultures at most times. It's like weird that it's like an exception to be in a place where like we're so removed from food production. Many of us, not you, obviously, Melissa, but uh, but I think like you can almost see like where we're churning in the right direction. And I think it's a question of like, how, how can we make that vision more you know, realistic, democratic, like equitable, um, and like how to achieve it, you know, like how to really push it because, um, otherwise it does get stuck in that utopian architecture register of like, Oh, that's a pretty picture, man. If I had a million dollars, I could do something like that, but you know what I mean? And that, that's like a shame because yeah. these are like basic needs, you know, <laughs> or, or if it's the 1970s and I'm in a cult. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, like a cool <laughs> science cult, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, sorry. But, but, you know, there is definitely ways to do it on the cheap and we have done it on the cheap. Like, like, you know, there is definitely ways to build hoop houses really cheaply, get some PVC, get some, you know, greenhouse uh, plastic that you could order. Like I've, I've, I've done it really cheaply. Um, but, but on that note, exactly what you're saying with like, um, how to, you know, there, there is a difference between a hoop house and, the difference of having a greenhouse attached to your home and having it want to do all the things that you want it to do, right? So produce food and warm your home and all these other things, right? So, um, and and I think there, you know, there's very creative people out there who do it on the cheap and can do it, but I think it's also exactly what you're saying, the accessibility. So if you don't have a lot of time on your hands and if you are not a really creative person or could like, you know, kind of put these two things together and figure it out, um, you know, how, how can we actually make this doable for, for most people? Yeah. And I've seen like, there's so many cool projects and then products and there's kind of again, a spectrum. Like I saw a cool thing with algae, like it's a photovoltaic panel and then you're growing algae with it. And then there's plants and there's compost. It's like a whole setup and you can make it relatively cheaply, like a couple hundred bucks, but you have to know a lot of things like a lot of sort of electrical engineering, just like building nice wooden, things to house these pieces and then kind of plug it all in. Not a huge issue, but like you can imagine a product version where I just spend, let's say 400 bucks and get that in the mail. And it's like a dumpster size, like thing for growing some food, doing some other stuff. And you know, and it's like, you could also imagine that being something, the building co-op or whatever, like the future version of New York where most buildings are co-ops that's just built into architecture. And like the building has solar panels. It has some food production. It has compost, which you know, arguably shouldn't be picked up by trucks, but should be going through pipes, which is much, much more efficient um, and treated and being used, you know, the waste output gets used as an input that all that stuff just kind of happens. And because it's happening at a big municipal scale, it's like cost pennies. And you don't, you know, you might pay basically those pennies in taxes, but that's, that's, again, it's a spectrum and it, and it does kind of suck that it feels like we're still kind of in that, in the, in the urban US context, and many times stuck in that 1960s, 70s mode of like, you can, now it's easier with, with like the internet, but you can Google it build it yourself. Uh, or now we're moving into like a capitalist phase where you can also spend a bunch of money on a cool productized version of, you know, growing, but, um, but it's not basil. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Countertop herbs, but you know, I'm just hopeful that one day it'll be a political economic thing. That's just our part of our experience. Like food is, is a normal thing to grow just like it is to eat, you know? Yeah. And there are a lot of artists, I think, working to combat this on a level that is, um, because I think part of it is kind of just a cultural shift in like what we use the real estate in our house and our lawns for. And it's similar to how, you know, at a period of time, and I'm thinking especially with 
brutalist architecture like the Barbican in London, but the space of the kitchen was really um, deprioritized in house and apartment designs because that was just not an important place and that was not um, that was something you just wanted to hide and make as small and efficient as possible. And now with home designs, with our just shift in attitude towards cooking as a leisure activity, um, kitchens are huge and they're basically the main part of your house. And so I think a similar shift needs to happen in how we view the real estate boat is both inside and outside. And again, there's a lot of um, artists like Ellie Irons, who has been on this podcast, um, who have really tried to help people rethink the dead space of the lawn, the like, you know, lawns are just like the most ecologically horrid thing that exists. And how can we repurpose that in a way that is acceptable? Uh, I mean, in my parents' suburban neighborhood, you're like not allowed to do anything. There are so many aesthetic rules. You can't build or plan anything without approval. Um, and so I think there needs to be a shift in just what we want to see out of our neighborhoods and lawns. And, you know, we don't need the whole thing to be this nice, fluffy green grass. Like maybe it's actually covered in lettuce and a greenhouse. <laughs> We're clapping. We're clapping. Uh, <laughs> on that note, should we should we wrap up there, Melissa? Did you want to um, bring anything else to our attention vis-a-vis urban greenhouses? No, I think that's that's just you know just kind of what I've been thinking about. You know, at midnight when I'm YouTubing all of these sustainable houses that are made out of you know sand and soil and trash and. <laughs> <laughs> but um but yeah I think I think it's just an interesting you know topic in general and and to start thinking about of um greenhouses because a lot of commercial greenhouses have started to become popular in urban areas and how we produce food you look at the Brooklyn Grange you look at Gotham Greens you look at all these places that now have um these big greenhouses on roofs but really rethinking um, greenhouses as residential on roofs or in backyards and how that could help with sustainable design and growing food in general. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, we will have on more people related to this topic and we'll explore it further. And thank you for this quick, uh, you know, this little primer episode. Um, Thank you, Allie. Yeah. And thank you for this um, really insightful deep dive into something that I do hope we all have a greenhouse in our yard someday. (laughs) Yeah. Especially now in February. Give me a greenhouse. And a lettuce lawn. A lettuce lawn. Uh, (laughs) Lettuce lawns. And thank you, Melissa, for your, uh, your suggestion that we talk about this. Thank you, guys. Thanks to our brilliant guests. Fields theme music is by Sam Tyndall. Our amazing producing engineer at Heritage Radio is Liam Werner. Fields is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio and at Fields Podcast. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.